I know that we have a bunch of people um, tuning in from a distance, so um, I want to let those people know uh, that we here at Three should just uh, watch this amazing film uh, called A Place at the Table, and if you haven't seen it, um, you should definitely see it. Right, everybody who was here? Yes, yes. 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 Pretty amazing and challenging film. Um, I also want to um, especially welcome tonight Wendy Baker, who's with us uh, in a sort of Wendy. Uh, has done uh, for the community here in New York what Pastor Bob uh, in the video has done for his uh, community in the Rockies and, and maybe a whole lot more. We really appreciate and are so thankful for the work that you've done on me. Uh, next week is the holiday of uh, Purim, and a month after that, the holiday of Passover. Um, and as we all know, Jews mark both of these holidays with, among many other things, um, celebratory meals. And um, uh, for both of these holidays, um, our tradition enjoins us to make sure that those who are hungry can participate fully in the holiday festivities and feasting. So, of course, uh, one of the mitzvot, one of the commandments of Purim, um, is matanot levunim, gifts to the poor, um, which are specifically designed to ensure that um, those people have food to celebrate the holiday. Uh, Maimonides, towards the end of um, his uh, laws of Purim, um, actually tells us that as we allocate our resources for the poor holiday, um, that we should spend the most of our resources on gifts to the poor rather than on our own feasts and on gifts to our friends. And he reminds us that this is the way in which we find joy. Right? The way we find simcha, the joy of the holiday, uh, is to enable others, the poor, the stranger, those who don't have what we have, uh, to be joyful on the holiday. Now, in preparation for Passover, um, Jews traditionally donate and money. Who wants to help? Sorry? Feed people on Purim who need this help. Yes. We are having a food drive on Sunday at the Jewish Square Synagogue. You can bring small things that homeless people can take with them, like little apple sauces, uh, cans of tuna, small peanut butters, uh, wholesome crackers. Things like that, or a few things which they can use at Project Four to be part of the core scooter, so that the people who are having a meal there can have a little bit more festive meal. You can come and bring them from the morning and leave them on the table. I will be there with some volunteers to pack at three thirty. But if you want to really do something about this, that's what you can do. This year. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. We also have information um, on Project Four and the wonderful work that they do on the table out there. And we also have information about several other organizations, including LECA, uh, which is a, um, a food um, harvesting and distribution uh, organization um, in Israel. And LECA, as many of us know, uh, has the opportunity that instead of sending all the gifts of food to your friends who really don't want it, especially a month before Passover, uh, to instead uh, send them a card which shows that you have given um, contribution of the honor to LECA, which will give those funds and food to um, poor people in Israel who need it. So there's so many ways. Wendy, thank you so much for pointing out another way. Thank you. For people to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hey, so we collect hummus. That's right. So, <laughs> preparation for Passover, I urge all uh, all of us Jews who have to get rid of our hummus instead of selling it, uh, which isn't such a great thing anyway, actually, to give it to your local um, uh, food pantry. Uh, but in addition, right, we also donate. We will only accept clothes. Yes. 
That's right. Open packages are very tricky. Non-perishable closed packages. You collect non-perishable open packages like open flour, open noodles, things like that on the Sunday before Pesach, March 29th. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I want to move a little further in as we actually begin the holiday of Passover. Right? We say we start our meal and we begin the seder by saying, "What do we say?" Anybody who is hungry, let them come and eat. And what we're actually saying is not just that we're giving food to the hungry, but that we are actually literally making sure that everyone has a place at the table. In fact, that everybody has a place at our table. But what, what I was thinking about last night, actually, was that the, the Mishnah, when it starts to talk, the 10th chapter of the Mishnah of Pesachim, that starts to talk about the ritual of the Seder night, as it starts to talk about it, actually, the focus of the beginning of the Mishnah is actually on the poor person. And the Mishnah tells us two things about the poor person. One is that the community has to make sure that the poor person has the same resources to fulfill their ritual responsibilities on that night as everybody else, right? They can, even though they're poor and they're getting food from the soup kitchen, uh, they have to get the same four cups of wine that every other Jew who's celebrating Passover has that night. But what struck me last night when I was kind of thinking about, uh, about this first Mishnah is that the Mishnah actually starts by talking about the fact that you're not supposed to eat uh, on Passover Eve until the Seder. And it says, even a poor person, <laughs> I should not eat until they recline. Until they recline. Now, of course, the reason we recline at the Seder is that that's how we symbolize that we are free people, that we are liberated people, that we are people who enjoy dignity and self-sufficiency. And I think that the Mishnah, by mentioning the word recline in reference to the poor person, is reminding us that every single one of us was redeemed from Egypt, and that the person who struggles to feed himself or herself uh, and their family is as deserving uh, as any of us um, of eating, not just eating food, but of eating in the dignity of freedom and self-sufficiency. So as we approach these holidays, I think perhaps that we're more, or ought to be more mindful than usual of our obligations toward those who are hungry. And tonight, as we stand on the threshold of the holiday season, we have the opportunity to recall something else that Maimonides teaches us about our obligations to the poor. This is probably one of the most famous lines uh, from Maimonides' code. Um, and Maimonides uh, tells us that we should really go beyond feeding those who are hungry to doing everything that we can to make sure that those people will stop needing our help in order not to be hungry. Maimonides famously explains that the highest level of tzedakah which we usually translate as charity, but of course means justice. The highest level of justice is to help the poor person become self-sufficient so that he or she will no longer need a handout and will no longer need to ask for our help. So tonight I'm more than delighted, <laughs> another word for that, but thrilled uh, that Ethan uh, Finston and Pam Johnson are here uh, to help us learn how to do that. Their stories, their lives, and their work bear witness to the possibility of helping those who are hungry, not only by providing nourishing food, but also by working to create a more just society where people have access to good food without depending on their handouts. So that next year, as we enter the holiday season, those people will no longer need a place at our table because they will sit, or rather recline, at a table of their own. So let's hand Pam. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody.
uh, we're really uh, we're really um, honored to be invited to be a part of your uh, three-part series on um, hunger and exploring uh, some of the uh, policies and causes and systemic realities that affect so many people across this country. And, um, and so we're really um, um, happy to be able to share uh, our story with you tonight um, and the story of some work that's been going on uh, just across the river in, in uh, I guess you could walk across the river right now, it's so frozen, <laughs> uh, over in central New Jersey. Um, and uh, the work that's going on at a, a, a wonderful organization called Elijah's Promise. Um, and so we're gonna just kind of walk you through and talk you through some of uh, the good things that are happening there. Um, and and, uh, and just wanna kind of frame and put some context around that um, by uh, just kind of recapping what brings us to this point tonight as we talk about um, this issue of food insecurity and hunger. Um, and through the movie, A Place at the Table, and I'm sure what you heard um, uh, from Mark Winnie last week, who is um, uh, really a tremendous role model um, and inspiration to a lot of our work in central New Jersey um, as a, a forerunner of doing a really wonderful community-based food justice work in Hartford um, before he sprang forth to do uh, more national uh, work. Um, and uh, and some of the things that um, that that were discussed through workshops around the faith context um, out of which uh, we address this issue. Um, I just want to kind of you know quickly look at what 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 brings us to this table. Um, and and so we know that food insecurity remains high um, even after the recession and the economic recovery that we're seeing. Fourteen percent of New York state residents right now are estimated to be food insecure by the USDA. We know obesity and diabetes are, are really at epidemic levels. Uh, the disparities of who um, has ready access to good food and who doesn't um, is evidenced through these terms that you know are sort of new on the landscape, food deserts, uh, where there's simply not enough uh, full-scale grocery stores or corner markets on every dotting, you know, the landscape that carry nothing but um, packaged uh, kind of junk food um, and food swamps, which is, you know, another term where we see sort of the flip side of the coin of lack of access where there's just a flooding of bad food, junk food, fast food restaurants, um, and again, corner markets. Um, and, and we know that in addition to um, these realities on the marketplace uh, where people access food, we have this emergency food system, you know, this uh, food safety net that's evolved over the past um, several decades um, where people are receiving um, the charity of good folks who are doing really important work. Um, and yet the disparities continue there as we saw those boxes of food coming and the bags of food being unpacked coming from the food pantry in the movie um, bags of chips, cookies, um, food that really is not that healthy uh, for people who are struggling um, to put any food on the table, let alone good food on the table. Um, and the reality is that our emergency food system, which, uh, which Pam and I have been uh, working and uh, have been a part of, that this very food system that we're so really dedicated to and proud of the important work that happens, 
unfortunately, the reality is that the food that's distributed through the system is leftovers. And it's food that doesn't sell in the grocery stores and corporations take huge tax write-offs to donate that food, which then gets distributed through our emergency food system. Um, and we operate from this posture that something is better than nothing. Um, and so the public safety net that, in addition, is the most important uh, anti-hunger um, uh, reality in our country, uh, food stamps, now called SNAP, uh, WIC, school breakfast, school lunch, um, the programs that, again, were discussed um, at length in the movie, um, the participation rates in those anti-hunger initiatives um, that are sponsored by the government um, are simply inadequate. And uh, with approximately one out of four eligible folks um, not participating, what we continue to see is that that very safety net is just filled with fray and, and holes. And so we continue to see, um, you know, the problem of hunger at, at, at epidemic proportions. Um, so what I want to just kind of posit as a context as we kind of shift into our discussion about Elijah's promise and that work um, is that what we're really in the midst of right now is a really important paradigm shift. Um, and all of these terms that I know have been um, thrown out there, again, through the speakers and, and the workshops and the movie, um, I kind of lump into this sort of understanding that we're shifting from an old paradigm and we're into a new paradigm um, of how we address this problem. And so the old paradigm I'm calling ending hunger and the new paradigm is building food security. Um, the focus of the old paradigm was on the individual. An individual who comes to our doors, we look at that person and we ask, what's wrong that this person is hungry? Um, and we attempt to try to fix the person. Um, the new paradigm looks at, as we heard again, and, and I know we've heard and, and we all know to be true, looks at the community. What's wrong in this community that this person is hungry and these people are hungry and poor? How do we fix the system and the community so that there's no longer poor people? Um, again, the hallmark of the old paradigm is this emergency food system that evolved over these past several decades uh, as a wonderful tribute to the charity and the goodwill and, um, and the desire of good people to solve a very real complex community problem. Um, the new paradigm is looking at how do we build strong local food systems that are sustainable so that we are able to meet this need and these continuing needs, which we know will always be among us to some degree for the long haul. Um, clearly, emergency food system didn't work when the recession hit and the emergency food system was absolutely overwhelmed by the, the, the breadth of need in our communities. Um, one sec. And, and, um, and so this old paradigm is really rooted in charity as the value system that will solve the problem. The new paradigm is looking at justice as the paradigm and the context that will solve the problem. As, um, as Devorah, I think so, um, appropriately reference Maimonides' um, notion that the highest order of giving is to is to to help somebody by order of giving them a loan or a job so that they will be able to feed themselves. The old paradigm is looking at government as the answer and the the entitlement programs and those benefits, food stamps, SNAP, school meal programs, and so forth. The new paradigm is looking at how do we fix a broken food system where corporate food 
companies, agribusinesses have taken over and essentially eviscerated the ability for people to access good food at affordable prices and that we need to look at fair wages and that we need to look at this issue of food access. The old paradigm, handout, donation-based. We give somebody a fish they eat for today. The new paradigm is looking at how do we provide uh, longer-term solutions, provide people with the tools so that they'll be able to take care of themselves and, and not have to have a place at our table but be able to invite others to their table. Um, so this is, I think, really important to think around how are we participating in this paradigm shift in the activities and, and, in, our, um, and in our work uh, as people who are concerned about this, this issue of hunger and food insecurity. Um, Wendy, I saw you jumping out of your seat. One question, something that I have heard about, I'm not experienced personally, is a situation in schools where there is a stigma on the children who take the free lunch. And they won't take the free lunch because the other children say things to them. And this to me is a horrible thing because these children, many of whom are really hungry, are missing the food or maybe able to afford a bag of chips or a soda. And you see, you see that side, that's what they're having. How do we deal with this as a human problem and it's the problem of children who always oppose those who are different than they are somehow. So, so and it, it, to me, it's, it's a demonstration. It, you're absolutely right. And, and so let me give you a very, uh, a very clear example of a success around how this issue is being addressed. And, um, and, and coming from this, the wonderful state of New Jersey, I am often not very proud of New Jersey, but I have to say that, um, but right now I am very proud of an incredible success in the state of New Jersey. Over this last year in the state of New Jersey, we catapulted from the bottom, uh, I think the, the third to worst uh, state in the nation in terms of our school breakfast participation pro, uh, uh, Kids who are eligible for the free and reduced lunch actually taking advantage also of breakfast. We ranked at the bottom of the pile of the states. Um, we catapulted up, uh, I forget how many notches, but we did so well because of a really concerted campaign to, to, um, to move towards what's called universal breakfast in the classroom or breakfast after the bell. We had a wonderful campaign that was spearheaded by a, a, a statewide a children's advocacy organization and our anti-hunger um, advocacy organization um, and lots of local groups and our local central New Jersey community participated and also achieved a success in New Brunswick um, where we got the the municipality to agree to offer universal breakfast after the bell in uh, the community and so what that does is it takes away stigma everybody regardless of eligibility is served breakfast but when you get to the lunches, it could be, it could be an expensive proposition to say everybody gets the free lunch. Well, it's the and same. That's, you know, it's, 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 it's the same with the lunch program in those communities where breakfast has been um, created as a universal benefit. And usually in those uh, districts, um, somewhere around 80%, I think, is the, is the benchmark of, uh, of, of uh, eligible children. 
um, if there are that many who are eligible for free and reduced, then it becomes universal. So it's not a huge expense. But but the see a great objection that not only do we well, yeah, and usually in those school districts, um, the the kids that are are not eligible are probably not rich. They're probably right on that line where a couple of dollars in family income bumps them out of the running. And the reality is that uh, I think all the studies indicate that the cost savings in the long run to participate in those programs. Um, and to offer those programs is far outweighs the cost. And the other reality is money to and on the dinner that they have to make out. That's exactly right. They don't have to give the dollar and a half or whatever. That's right. And it also most of those families where the children now are accessing two meals a day in school, it means the family does not have to schlep around to pantries all week long trying to find food to be able to supplement because that couple of meals I think can make a huge difference on a family's budget. So I think again in the long run the participation in those programs um, and the cost far outweighs uh, you know what what the long-term costs are to society to not offer those programs. So 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 we're gonna um, we're just gonna kind of jump in a little bit and then we'll is that okay? Do you mind? Okay. All right. Let's so let's so let's tell a little bit of our Elijah's Promise story. I'm going to kick it over to Pam to talk uh, about um, the soup kitchen. Let me just say so Pam so Pam Pam and I so I came to Elijah's Promise in 1993 and, and worked there for 20 years um, and about halfway through no not even halfway through 1998 90, 1997 um, when we launched the culinary school at Elijah's Pam came along and lit up my world, and um, and we've uh, we've had the tremendous benefit uh, of working together for many years now, uh, doing really important work. I think, and um, Pam's a, a wonderful woman who um, whose passion and dedication to making sure that everybody has something to eat and a place uh, to to stay when it's cold outside. Uh, and her love and compassion and care for people is just uh, an inspiration, and uh, she's she's a joy. So I'm going to let her tell you about the soup kitchen. Okay. Hello, everyone. Pam Johnson, um, and I am uh, the chef um, of the soup kitchen of the soup kitchen in New Brunswick. Um, this is my former boss now. <laughs> Um, and we certainly have had a journey together. Um, but what I would like to just piggyback on just some of the stuff um, that I do see down at the kitchen, um, you know, when our guests come through there, um, a lot of them, you know, are not homeless. Some of them are just what we saw on the film. They're just trying to make ends meet. Some of them, um, you know, our working class. And uh, although we do have some homeless people down there, we do have addiction and some other things, but uh, I wonder at times, you know, when do, um, when do we stop to take a look at, you know, what's happening, what's really happening around us? Um, you know, when you see, um, somebody coming through the facility 
and they're absolutely talking about that that seven o'clock meal um, could be the last meal. And um, you know, after because we do serve our our meals from eleven a.m. until seven uh, p.m. But in the course of that, you know, you may have uh, you know just some of our guests that you know are they're just hungry, and um, you know it makes me wonder. Um, how are we hungry in this great nation of America? You know, how are people actually hungry? Well, you know, we say, well, there's pantries, there's the canned goods, there's the potatoes that are hydrated, um, and people are suffering because the food that they know as food that's given, that's handed down through the greater pantries, um, you know, as like the food bank, you know, we get foods uh, from there um, that supply us to feed, but there are either some high in sodium, high in salt. Um, we have a lot of our guests down there that suffer from diabetes, there's hypertension. So I'm wondering, you know, when I look at, you know, um, this on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I try to tell people that <clears throat> Elijah's promised and I'm almost certain other pantries, you know, we want them to see it as a hand up and not a hand out, you know, um, getting people nourished as opposed to um, putting a bandage on the gunshot wound, which is okay, there's a diabetic walking through my door, someone with high blood pressure, but here's a can of mixed vegetables, but no one checked the label. No one looked to see that there were such and such a grams of sodium, such and such a grams of sugar. So to the diabetic, to the individual with the hypertension, here you go. Eat well and be happy. You know, I mean, really, this is, <laughs> this is, um, this is the part that makes it very difficult. And just with, with from running the, the soup kitchen on a daily basis, I do create the meals, uh, I do create the menus. And so I get firsthand look at what comes in the door, you know? And I gotta sit back and I have to say, okay, well, you know, we can, you know, rent some of the salt and some of the sugars off of this, you know, um, but but one of the things that we try to do down there at Elijah's Promise is to try to make sure that our um, guests that come through the door are getting healthy nutrition and a balanced meal. Well, how do we do that? We certainly can't give them that if everything is in cans, you know, how can we fix it? Well. I would say we can be a part of the problem, uh, part of the solution and not the problem by maybe getting fresher fruits and vegetables donated into the facilities. Um, another way is monetary. You know, $20 can go a long way if I had to go and shop for tomatoes, lettuce, carrots, onions, you know, these are the um, some of the foods that could help, you know, um, people who are suffering with 
suffering with uh, chronic illnesses, such as myself, as I may add, with diabetes, you know. Um, so I, I just, um, I just want to, you know, be a part of, uh, of the community base as a whole of helping to, to try and bring more um, sustainable foods and, um, and better uh, fruits, a variety of foods and things that can help people as opposed of the, um, the rice, the sugar, the popcorn, the candy dates, the stuff that comes, you know, from off of that big truck that is causing probably more harm than good. So as a community, collectively, you know, I was just telling Lizanne, I think that we need to probably do another walk to Washington, you know, to, um, to talk about this because this is ongoing. It's an epidemic. People are suffering. People are are um, hungry in a in a in a in a in a state where they shouldn't be. The garden, the state. garden state of all things. That's right. So, so one of the one of the ways that we addressed the the lack of fresh food at the soup kitchen mm -hmm. was um, we began a, a shift, a paradigm shift, many years ago, um, and people laughed at us in the emergency food system when we said we were gonna uh, we were gonna get rid of cans of juice. Mm -hmm. We were going to get rid of cans. We were going to only serve a fresh garden salad at every meal and fresh vegetables. And they laughed and they said, "People, this was at a conference with soup kitchens and pantries from across central and northern New Jersey. They laughed. They said, you can't do that. It's too expensive. It was funny. We had a little panel. And so there was like four or five of us who were presenting on things we were doing. And, and I was talking about this. And they all laughed at me. And they said, you can't do it. It became the, the focus of the entire conference was people telling me on this panel of all these people that we couldn't do it. And what were we thinking? So that's all you need to tell me is you can't do something. And that's it. So we went to it, and 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 we not only um, started serving salad at every meal, and the fresh salad was going in the garbage because nobody was used to eating salad, mm -hmm. and the garbage would be full of salad. And over the course of a couple of months, if we didn't have garden salad at a meal, people were asking for it. There was mm -hmm. no more salad in the garbage. Yep. And um, and what we did was we just we stopped buying cans from the food bank because they were expensive because you pay by the pound mm -hmm. and we started running up to the food bank with yeah. anybody we could get to go and getting whatever fresh food they had gleaned. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our area uh, cooperative extension uh, dedicated a half an acre to growing food for us. We asked uh, different congregations who were used to donating to us to grow an extra row in their garden in the summer and donate the fresh produce. Um, we asked uh, folks to come in, and when we had some abundance of fresh food coming in during the growing season, to come in and process that food. Mm -hmm. And we began a tomato campaign, and we processed thousands and thousands of pounds of tomatoes and made sauce, so that we, which we froze, and we used that year-round, and we never had to buy a can of tomato sauce. Um, we didn't need a donation of a can of tomato sauce, because we had made our own tomato sauce from fresh New Jersey tomatoes. Who could ask for more than that? And we do our own soups, fresh daily. 
and we took salt off the tables, which at first was a big problem. We thought our heads were going to get chopped off because of you know taking the salt out of off the and that table. was the volunteers who were very angry that we were doing that Ab absolutely but we did it and guess what there's pepper on the tables and that's what they use so it was just a matter of uh i think a a, a matter of educating mm -hmm. um the public and educating our guests about being healthy and 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 what it was to live longer to try to get them to understand that we weren't trying to hurt them, but we were trying to be a part of the solution and not the problem. And we shifted to a choice model soup kitchen mm -hmm. so that instead of everybody lining up outside and coming in and, and being shepherded through in an hour um, and everybody getting the same meal, um, we broaden the menu so there's a salad bar and there's a choice of items so that people can have access to a range of items, just like a community restaurant. And they can come any time between the hours of 11 and 7, not being sort of herded through like cattle um, at an appointed time. And, and we set up the soup kitchen dining room from long tables looking sort of like Oliver, you know, twist, um, to little rounds um, and square tables. and cafe style you can kind of get a little bit of a glimpse in the picture here with flowers and decorations and so people feel like they're at a community restaurant and there's dignity and there's choice and there's fresh food that's served daily um, and and that shift um, was conducted over over a number of years um, and the the result was that we spent less money on our food budget by serving fresh food than we did buying cans from the food bank that we paid a per pound uh, charge for. And by asking our donors and people who regularly donated to us to shift from donating white rice to brown rice, from donating canned goods that were in, you know, canned fruit, for example, in uh, uh, syrup to donating fresh fruit um, and changing the way they did their contributions to us, um, it helped to shift what we were able to do together as a community to help um, people have access to a much better quality um, food. Can you give an example of what a day's um, menu might look like? What's, what's a penne pasta with vodka sauce. We don't have the vodka in it. <laughs> but you know, we do have the cream and we have the sauce. Um, there will be, you know, nice uh, garlic bread. A fresh garden salad is done daily. Um, one of the other meals is that, you know, they, they may even have a chicken parm. They, uh, uh, one of the meals that we have is the lemon, uh, which they love is the lemon and rosemary chicken. And uh, astoundingly, the lemon um, is used to substitute the salt intake because lemon acts as a substitute. You know, it, it, it brings on a flavor that there's salt. So that's another way to fool them. Um, and they might have a nice rice pilaf. And then we have, you know, vegetables or either a salad. But again, like Lizanne spoke about, we don't do, at one time, we were doing the one size fit all. You get what you get, you know? Um, and when that module was changed, now they have a full range of salad bar 
they have a hot entree and then they have a soup that's made daily uh, through myself or through the volunteers along with assorted sandwiches. So we are shifting, um, but it just almost seems like we take two steps forward to only take two steps backwards. So we just have to find a, a happy medium. When I, well, when I say two steps backwards is what I'm when I'm saying we'll get to a place where, okay, fresh stuff is, is coming in, right? Um, but then on the other hand, more canned goods would follow behind it. Um, so we just have to get to a place where we can wholesomely give fresh, if I could see fresh vegetables and a fresh apple every day, it would make my life, it would make me happy and certainly make the guests and people around the, us, the world, the, you know, they just, we, we need to be instilling um, just fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, as opposed to uh, the canned goods and the everyday um, slop of the the mill. I, I'm sorry to say that comes down. You know, it it is. It's the ends meet. It's um, and I'm just ex explaining what I'm experiencing. Um, the um, the mold on the cucumber. Do I cut half of it? to serve because I want the guests to have something fresh or do I toss it? Well, I'm going to toss it because I don't want to feed anyone something that I don't want to eat myself. Unless the mold is not an inch in, it, it has to go, you know? Um, and that's the module that we carry at Elijah's Promise. We're not going to feed anybody or give them anything that we will not eat ourselves, you know? And one of the realities of an emergency food system, which is which is a distribution system, is that moving, uh, uh, you know, fresh food um, from the point of sale to a point of use mm -hmm. is going through multiple organizations and transportations, and by the time it even leaves the grocer, it's already on its way out, and there will be times when you know, we'll get a a, a, a pallet of, of some sort of vegetable that um, that they'll come and, you know, the food bank will come and drop off at the soup kitchen, mm -hmm. and you take two, you know, heads of lettuce off the top, and the rest is already composted. Um, and, and this is the challenge um, of, you know, I don't, and I'm not trying to blame the food bank. It's, it's the challenge of a, a broken system and how we make that system work. Um, and again, so one of the ways we've been working to, to fix that particular problem um, is working with organizations like, and I see America's Grow Row uh, is represented on the table out um, in the hallway, um, and uh, uh, Farmers Against Hunger, um, which are a couple of groups in New Jersey. Um, there's groups that are growing food, and, if, and what, what happens is that fresh food that we get after it's been harvested, and oftentimes we send our volunteers out to harvest it, we're getting it's fresh and then we bring in volunteers and have processing parties and they're chopping and slicing and dicing and blanching and then we're freezing and storing that food so that again we can kind of keep that goodness going 
um, during the months of January and February when it's there's nothing coming nothing. from the food bank that's fresh. All right, a couple quick questions and then we'll keep going. Yeah. I just want to go back to the paradigm, the new paradigm that, mm -hmm. that you projected before. Mm -hmm. and, and it seemed to me that one thing that was missing there mm -hmm. is the, the word education. Mm -hmm. Because I think that uh, I remember seeing uh, once a uh, documentary on why is it that in, uh, in poor neighborhoods where uh, they have bodegas and quarter uh, stores, uh, there's very little, there's, there's very little fresh uh, fruits or vegetables. It's, it is uh, that the uh, the owner says nobody buys them, right? And that there would be no point in his stocking them. And and I think that's that's to a large extent the fact that people don't realize that canned stuff is not as good as fresh, right? And and, that, and, uh, and uh, Another uh, an example might be, let's say, where you have uh, you have bottles of water versus bottles of soda. The soda goes, yes. the water doesn't go. That's Even right. though we, we all know that water is much healthier yeah. than that. So apparently it's, it's, not, it's not only a question of money, because the, the soda costs more than the water does, but it's a question of education. education. You know what what is really healthy for them, yep. and and what they should be spending the, the limited resources that they have. Absolutely, I'll make I'll make sure I add that into the into the paradigm. And and there's actually a national corner market initiative um, that's uh, sponsored out of a, a organization in Philadelphia, and um, and that's the act that's the premise of the of the program is to educate people in communities. And, and working with corner market owners to help them understand the business decision to carry those healthy foods done in tandem with an educated consumer base in the neighborhood who will come and ask for those items and purchase those items is, is actually helping to turn uh, corner markets around. Philadelphia has many hundreds of corner markets now participating in their program. It's a great program. I just wanted to share something that I just come up with because And and that's a policy issue that we need to address with our with our local restaurants. Wouldn't that be interesting if they if they serve smaller portions and and you were able to have them actually serve somebody in their restaurant of a meal that was their own? Just thinking, <laughs> Wendy. Uh, I've seen people who could get let's say a full bag of dry, a pound of dried beans in a food pantry yeah. or a can of beans and they will take the can of beans which makes you know one quarter or one fifth or 
one-tenth of what the Pan Bay would, would do. Because they don't have what to do with it, or they feel I don't have the time to go in. Uh, you get the same thing with somebody who we had this month. We got yeah, but you need we had hot dogs, we had chicken quarters, we had chopped meat, all of these reasons. And what went? Hot dogs. And there were people who just didn't know what to do That's right. with this other meat. Back to education. I do love a good hot dog though, I have to say. Rut's hot in New Jersey, my favorite. Uh, but yeah, education is really important and, and making sure that making sure that people um, have the, the tools and the skills um, to be able to make the best use of those resources is really important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with pictures, because many did read this was in a rural mm -hmm. uh, food bank that I was working at. Sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I put three little things with water and one little thing with the, of the food, and then you put it in the pot and with fire under it, and then you get the idea. That's how you cook. Yeah. Because we were given five pound bags of cornmeal. Yeah. And. You know, that would feed a lot of people. It may not be the highest quality. If you knew what to do with it. But if, yeah, if right. they knew what to do with it. Right. We had a little old lady came in, saw that, and she took it. She said, this we need this all winter. Right. But the younger women had no idea. Didn't know what to so do. So it occurred to me to make these little diagrams, you know, that, yeah. that they could uh, Good thinking. try to make it. Yeah. So, so, um, so, sorry, we'll, so we'll, we'll sort of shift back. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna, we'll probably get through maybe a couple more slides by the time we're done at this rate. Sorry, sorry, we're just kind of taking our time here. Um, so, so Elijah's Promise um, is a volunteer-based uh, soup kitchen model, and so what what we saw early on in the days of the soup kitchen, which was founded um, in uh, um, 19, uh, gosh, I'm getting so old, I can't remember stuff now. 1990 for what? 19, 1991 or so, I think. Um, and um, so a lot of the people eating at the soup kitchen also were volunteering because they liked cooking. They wanted to be a part of, uh, of, of, the, of the socializing and the good work that was happening there and, um, and who doesn't feel good in giving back. Um, and so we saw this and we learned there was this wonderful program going on in Washington, D.C. Uh, at a place called D.C. Central Kitchen. Um, where they actually created a culinary school out of and in the midst of um, that that work that was going on to solve the problem of hunger. So um, so we said, hey, let's try that. Um, and again, went around and talked to people and told them the idea, and they laughed. There's a lot of laughing going on at, at these ideas that we had. Um, and. Uh, and in 1997, we launched the Promise Culinary School, um, which, um, which is a, a state-approved private vocational school. And uh, students come to the program. Uh, it's a 19-week um, full-time program. Um, and, uh, and it replicates the real world of working in the food industry. So uh, begins in the morning, ends at the end of the day. Uh, uh, 35, 40 hour week, and and folks are learning all of the tools of the trade, um, and uh, they're coming from all kinds of places: welfare to work, uh, uh, a vocational uh, department of voc vocational rehabilitation, people with mental illness, people with substance abuse, people who are homeless, people who are working poor, um, and uh, have just not been able to hold down a job um, or access a, a decent paying job. 
and um, and so that program has been around for a lot of years now. You came through the program. I came through the program. I graduated in '98. I was the second class. Um, I also I came from a background of uh, you know addiction. Um, heroin and crack cocaine. And so by the time I arrived, <laughs> I needed a change. And uh, Elijah's promised the school was there um, to help me develop, you know, to have, uh, get some social skills and to be able to go um, and become a productive member of society, which allowed me to get a job. And they often had to advocate for some people who have had you know, some history, you know, with the law and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was able to, you know, I graduated, I got through the program, which was extensive, very extensive. I had some um, challenges uh, with math and I had the lovely Ms. Ann draw circles for me for fractions and help me to understand because um, I knew what ounce was on the street value for drugs. <laughs> Um, but I could not differentiate the two once I got into culinary. And, and culinary requires for you to know an ounce, you know, from half to. Um, so I got through that and uh, was able to get work and um, went out and uh, applied and opened up uh, my own restaurant to only come back and return as the head chef. So I am privileged and honored. Um, for that school. So all those that laughed probably have to laugh last because the program is very successful in helping um, people who probably wouldn't have the opportunity to be in a workforce and get um, an education at the price also that's given, which is cheaper than um, most of the um, the schools that are out there and they're getting um, a high quality education from that school. There's some very great chefs there and they're learning a trade and being able to go out in the workforce. So, um, mm -hmm. And as an offshoot of that experience of now um, moving people to a place where they're working, they're productive, um, uh, even in positions now coming back and hiring uh, students who are in the program now, um, we shifted our thinking, and, and here's where some of this paradigm shift to um, to the idea of the hand up and social enterprise. And so, how do we, as a charitable organization, shift from relying on handouts to generating our own income and jobs and creating employment opportunities for the very people that we're that we're trying to help. And so the cycle of social good has emerged through the model of Elijah's Promise. So uh, as an offshoot to the culinary school, we created a catering business. People were saying, oh, the students are doing this great stuff. Can they do something for us? Um, and, so, um, and so a catering business was born a year into the culinary school um, after it launched. Um, and so the business model, um, has been really focused on this cycle of social goods. So um, the catering department is doing meals for uh, local daycare, meals on wheels, um, and bringing healthy, nutritious food to low-income folks 
employing the very people who have been assisted through the program in the process um, and creating those, um, those, those good wage jobs. Um, and just to sort of move forward a little quickly, um, um, then, then, um, and then we began to kind of push at that paradigm shift a little bit further and, um, and saw an opportunity to move out of the soup kitchen business altogether and shift to an, a notion of how do we create a community restaurant where, where we take away the stigma of somebody coming in um, and, and cordoning off in a community to another location those hungry people um, to recognize that hunger affects all kinds of people and um, and why not dine side by side in a restaurant um, and so uh, and so there again because we like to steal ideas from other places uh, there was this great place in uh, Utah in Salt Lake City called um, One World Everybody Eats and they were just kind of starting to uh, replicate their model and, and Better World Cafe uh, opened up um, Gosh, how long has it been now? About five, six years ago. Um, and I think we were maybe the fourth um, uh, um, pay, pay what you can cafe in the nation to open up. Um, and so it's a pay what you can model. And the employees are uh, graduates of the culinary school, working side by side with volunteers, um, preparing uh, really lovely meals using locally sourced food. Um, and, um, and a pay what you can model. There's a complimentary dish on the menu every day. Uh, people can pay a suggested price or whatever they can afford or put together a meal that includes the complimentary dish with some other items and for you know two bucks you can have a great lunch um, and uh, and so that restaurant has been a really wonderful addition to um, an opportunity for us to see what it looks like to move away from this old model of soup kitchens and food pantries what if soup kitchens were community restaurants. What if food pantries became corner markets? Um, what if we moved ourselves to this new place um, in how we look at uh, ending hunger? Um, and, then, and then the most recent incarnation of social enterprise that's emerged um, uh, was uh, just opened up this last summer, yeah. right? Yeah, farms. last summer, um, uh, a, a market um, called a Better World Market, which is um, featuring, uh, which is actually like a corner store, um, featuring all local, locally produced foods in partnership with a local farm. So there's fresh produce. It's kind of a year-round uh, farm, indoor farm market um, with local, locally produced uh, meats and vegetables. Um, and food items, um, and so the culinary school is producing prepared foods and breads through the baking program um, and working in the market, and so um, uh, and so that's become a, a real hub of activity and um, excitement in that central New Jersey area. Um, and uh, and and again, as we kind of mentioned before, uh, growing food. Um, uh, down the street from the soup kitchen is a community garden um, and uh, working with folks from the soup kitchen and in the neighborhood or growing food um, and um, cooking classes and all kinds of there's all kinds of stuff going on um, and and all of and all of these ventures and all of these activities um, have really been a part of this movement to to shift um, this paradigm 
um, to look at how do we create opportunities for people to solve their own problem um, of, of poverty and the tools to be able to move out of poverty and become self-sufficient. Um, all right, questions and keep going. At the very, well, there's only one more. There's only, this is kind of the last slide. Huh? Okay, so hold on. I'm going to do the slide, and then we're going to then we're going to slide into questions. Um, so so we were kind of asked to talk about this issue of what can we do to what can we do what what are the what are the things that we can do um, to be a part of this work in a in a significant and meaningful way. Um, and and I heard Wendy say that um, that in many ways this. The series has been preaching to the choir. Many of us in the room are people who are doing this work, who are involved and engaged um, already in, in these activities. Um, I love singing in the choir. Um, and, and, so, um, and so what I like to do is just, when I know that what, what we have to do and the work we're doing is really important, is just sing really loudly. Um, and so I think um, one of the things we can do is we can find those places in our communities um, where some of that system work um, is happening to address policy and some of the change, um, you know, uh, uh, agent work that needs to happen. Um, and so Mark Winnie, I'm sure, talked last week about food policy councils, and and that is a growing movement um, for, of people from all places uh, and sectors within a community coming together um, to look at creating change locally, breakfasts uh, after the bell programs, um, um, uh, more community gardening um, and, and municipal land allocated for community gardening. Um, these are some of the things that we were a part of in Brunswick in organizing a local food policy council to create some change in that community um, and ownership of these uh, these issues. Um, buy your food locally from, you know, know, know your farmer, know your food is a wonderful little clarion call of, of, uh, of, of agriculture. Um, but get to know not just the people who grow your food, but the people who bake your bread and the people who, um, who you know, who produce your meal and cook for you in your local restaurant. And and make sure that those places that you patronize are are a part of this justice piece. That they're paying their workers fairly. That they're sourcing their food in a sustainable way from um, from. Um, um, from growers and producers um, who each step of the food chain are involved in fairness and equity um, in the work that they do. Um, um, promote better food in your schools. There's a huge movement, farm to school, farm to cafeteria, um, helping to support the access to that better quality food, um, even on limited budgets um, in, in some of our uh, local communities. Um, learn about and support fair trade practices. Um, Learn about um, um, and advocate for policy changes and shifts um, from local policy to state and national policy. And I know, again, there was some discussion here around the Farm Bill. Um, there's a, just so much to learn about and understand about that very important uh, food bill. Um, and, and our voices raised together loudly can have an impact. Um, and if we don't try um, and we don't really um, put ourselves to it, um, then change never happens. Um, and, and research the organizations that you do support um, and understand um, 
understand what they're doing with those donations that you're giving them um, because your dollar really can have an impact that twenty dollars you donate to an organization um, uh, can go a long way for that organization that's learned how to use those resources um, versus you go to the grocery store um, and spend twenty dollars on food that you donate and you don't know whether they really need that item or not um, so really research and understand uh, your involvement and your engagement um, so that what you're doing can have the, the best bang for the buck and most impact. Um, and there's so many other things and I'm sure you have some great ideas yourselves around ways that we can, do you want the microphone? So questions, thoughts, let's go right down the row. Is there any way that you can make use of the Leftover food from from various affairs. Go to a wedding. There's so much food yes, that's left over things. afterwards. Yes, they are. City Harvest does it. Uh, they will go through restaurants and things like that. Sometimes you have to speak to your caterer and see about getting. Please see that food is contributed. A lot of uh, yeshivas. They, they send food to a lot of the yeshivas and, and through some of the kosher caterers. And you do have to often sit on your caterer a little bit and get the synagogue, that's, if it's a, a caterer to the synagogue, get the synagogue to put pressure. I have fought with many caterers, because that's the part of me. If you've ever seen the smorgasbord comes off and you see them stand up with the big garbage pails and they go, with all of these platters of unfinished, you know, some untouched, some half, you know, used, and you see that go, it's enough to make you sick. And it made me sick, and it got me started doing things over 30 years ago. But I couldn't get to all the caterers, uh, two people couldn't do that. Uh, but we did start working on the caterers, and some of them, some of the chefs were the caterers. Also, have pet organizations that they see, you know, machines and so on, that they see getting. But City Harvest also does this now. And it's, got, it's something that you have to put pressure. Every person who makes a bar mitzvah, a wedding, uh, whatever, uh, what do you do with the leftovers? And, uh, and, and 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 sorry to interrupt you, Wendy. And it's and it's and again, this is where it's really important to think ahead and do your research first, because part of the challenge with um, with food waste is that oftentimes by the time that food gets to an organization like ours, we're required to abide by health department regulations. And so what happens is that food goes from your affair. Uh, somebody volunteers to bring it over and by the time they get it there it then gets thrown away because there's no knowledge of, of how it was transported so so what I was just gonna say is um, to do your research and work and as Wendy noted work with the caterer um, so that they are um, serving the food with the notion of donation at the end in mind so if the food can be managed in such a way so that by the time the affair is over the food that gets donated probably hasn't been touched and it's been stored and it's been handled properly so that it can go to a good cause rather than go into the garbage so again it's really understanding sort of how the system is structured 
very often caterers, they don't want to bother with it. Yes. You know, they call it a big pachka, you know, because it takes away time and money that right. they pay overtime yep. in some in many situations. Right. And so we have to start getting the synagogues um, involved in their relations with the caterers. That this is it. Whether you get a group in the synagogue that helps recycle or that sits on the caterer enough to see that this happens. That's right. Okay, this young man right here had a question. Yes. So one, I, I heard this uh, in the retail store, I can't remember where it was exactly, that they actually have a thing where you walk in and you can give you a paper and a extra slice, you can stick it under the wall, and they, they come in, and anybody who's hungry can come in, and there's like hundreds of the wall, which is beautiful. But I really like the notion that you mentioned earlier, and I don't remember where I heard it, but first of all, I heard it before, where um, regular restaurants will be giving food to and people, extra food to people, whether it's, you know, them being able to round up the total, you know, to take the rest of the set. People don't like having change anyways. Round up the total and that change will be added to money that's going towards giving food to people. And to whether or it's actually serving meals, you know, from I'm paying for myself under this light bulb, knowing that that money is going to some sort of charity. Yep. And that's an incredible solution, which yep. really, yep. You know, I feel can go all the way. Yep. And if more, and if more restaurants did that, maybe we wouldn't need soup kitchens. Yeah. Um, I just want to say that you know, in, in New York, in Manhattan in particular, um, the issue was homelessness because of the price of housing and then sure. uh, food insecurity. And I think a simple little project might be Grand Central. So many people go through that. And like just, I think it was the last week, I was sitting eating my food from Wendy's, and I noticed the police come and try to, and these people were just sitting there. And I told them they had to leave. And so I went up to them and said, why are you telling them to leave? Oh, you know, they'll, you know, they'll steal your uh, purse. And they just started telling me all these horrible things that these people were going to do. Um, and that, that's just unconscionable. So if we could raise the conscience, I see no reason why people can't sit at the tables in the winter. And if I'm not too much, I can just, I mean, it, but, Dealing with the police is that's part of the issue. And I guess there's some people who are people here. Exam instructions. It's not the police. No, I understand that. That's a piece to work on. That's all I'm saying. Yep. Yep. Education and stigma reduction. Hi, so thank you. That sounds like the model that you created, despite all the challenges that you had at the outset, maybe because of them, really is a successful model. And my question is, how can you, how do you see that being replicated across the country, such that the success that you've experienced, you know, could translate to other communities? And is that something, do you have a way to do that and an effective means of having it replicated? We have no effective means. Are there conferences, are there conferences where you can share this model? Do you have that ability? Is that something that, you know, there's, there's, um, so yeah, there's a lot of replication going on, but, but it's very happenstance. Um, and so it's kind of like, um, and, and so there, there is a group, um, that's working on the community cafe model, um, One World Everybody Eats Foundation and, um, that started in Salt Lake and, um, and, and that, that network just over the last six years or so now has grown 
gosh, I, I mean, there's probably about 20 to 30 um, cafes across the country. And many of you may have heard of John Bon Jovi's Soul Kitchen down in Red Bank, um, which, which is an example um, um, of one of those kitchens that's emerged and has brought some attention to the movement. Um, and um, um, Panera's um, converted a number of their stores into what they call Panera Cares stores, which are now a pay-what-you-can restaurant model. So, so it's catching on um, in an in a interesting way with the for-profit sector. My understanding is that Trader Joe's um, has actually also been looking at, in the Boston area, converting a Trader Joe's into something of a kind of um, yeah, community kind of grocery store. So, so that is one place where there's some intentional kind of replication going on. Um, yeah, in the in the food security world, not so much. Um, we don't have a real sort of network or place where it's happening. It's just kind of happening um, more informally. Um, we've helped a number of um, organizations in New Jersey start um, uh, culinary schools and kind of given them the curriculum and provided there staff to help them. There are churches on the west side yeah. that operate this way. West side campaign began somewhere in the street. Mm -hmm. Has cooking classes, mm -hmm. and uses the food that to feed the people who are coming in yep. and go through what looks like a grocery store yep. to pick up their food. Yes. Uh, the church on 114th Street, the Broadway Presbyterian, uh, the chef in charge of that soup kitchen, which is three days a week. Um, and they have um, also a cooking school that he runs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael Ellis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a little more informal kind of network um, where that stuff is happening. Yeah. David? I don't know the Eastern. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say that um, in terms of what you said before, that uh, someone mentioned that it was likely that to a certain extent, the city require, it's true that people have plenty of and we also have to work in this area. Other people have to do a lot of work. My own mother used to do a lot of things in our community. Um, I, I, I'll say for myself that I think this series has been very, really very educational. Uh, because I didn't, especially last week, I thought that uh, Mark really talked about the systems. I had no idea about the kind of systemic issues that exist around other. Yeah. For people, it's very important. I had no idea, and I imagine, I don't know that this lot of people also don't know. I have to say that the individual people who are doing some amazing things, and they're great. I think it's also very important that the community be, be educated about the uh, larger issues in terms of uh, what's going on around us, whether it affects us personally or not. It affects people in our community, who are obviously responsible uh, for everybody in our, in our community. And the other piece of that is important for Pia Prisha was to connect it to Jewish source, which is not difficult to do, but to put it on the table, both in terms of being citizens of the state, this country, but also in terms of our own tradition, that we have an obligation, a very strong obligation, to be involved in this, each of us, in our own way, but I think that's, so I think the series, I speak for myself, before the city the choir, as far as I'm concerned, it was, uh, I thought it was very educational, thank you for participating. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and and I think the um, I think that the faith community, which um, 
which which in many ways inadvertently because of of the call of and really universal call um, to address hunger, which I think we see in all the major world religions. Um, you know, we stepped up when the need arose back in the 80s um, and, and created essentially this charitable emergency food system. Um, and, and we kind of did such a great job that we've let the government off the hook in some ways. Um, and, so, and so when I say we need to be singing loudly in this choir, um, I think that we can change the tune. Um, but it really means that we need to understand these issues um, that have been discussed over these three um, weeks and, and be able to uh, address the people in positions of power and influence and uh, with money and uh, resources um, to really flip that script and say, hey, we've been doing this work, we answered the call, but now the new call is that all of us have to own this um, solution and um, and be creative together to solve it. And so I think we have a really important role to play and um, and this is an important dialogue. Um, and thanks for, for reminding us of that. Yeah. I John, final question. Thank you.
your own story, but what the where passion for this uh, comes from, and where that motivation comes from. Um, um, I don't know if it, it does come from um, your involvement with the church, or if that just if that's part of it, or think more about that. Talk about your motivation. Oh, okay. I thought he was asking you. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. So, yeah, well, my motivation came from, um, well, I grew up with a big family. My my mother had 17 brothers and sisters. Um, so I can remember as a kid hearing these big stories of my grandmother feeding the community with her 17 with a big pot of beans and maybe a little piece of salt pork and the person who got the salt pork got the gold but the community was fed the her 17 and whoever five six or seven kids that came in so cooking was always a part of um part of my growing up um and i just had a passion for it i just had a passion to um to bring people together. So I always was cooking at my house, um, giving some kind of party or something like that. And then um, when I found Elijah's Promise, um, it just allowed me to expand um, and to do more cooking and feed more people. So my love is that I'm simply back down in a kitchen um, with the community in which I've known because I ran the streets in that very community um, to see the same people come in that I ran with to have to eat and they're being fed with love and compassion um, and not just garbage and not just saying that you got to eat this. No, you don't have to eat this, but you're going to love this because it's passion and it's love and it's um, it's food. It's something to give hope. And that's what I like to believe that hope lives in that kitchen. And, and that's just a part of, it's just, I've always loved food. I've always been connected to it. Um, just going through Elijah's Promise gave me a, a greater connection. The French world of doing food. You know, they say gravy. No, they say brew. My mom say gravy, you know, we say oil flour, the French say butter flour. At the end of the day, we all meet in the middle. You get a sauce, a gravy, something good. So that's a part, that's my story of having passion. It's a good story. Yes. <laughs> your story. John wants my, to hear your story. My, my story is really boring. Um, <laughs> So, um, well, I got involved in this work. Um, I was in college in DC during the early 80s when kind of the explosion of homelessness um, and hunger kind of happened um, on the scene. And so, yeah, I mean, I just, um, you couldn't walk down the streets in Washington back then without tripping over somebody who was sleeping in the street, literally on the sidewalks and on benches. And well, of course, um, I just happened to be there then. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, and so, you know, I, you know, got to know people and um, it's, it's really hard, I think for most of us, um, once you kind of put a face to a problem um, and you put a name 
to a face um, and a relationship evolves, um, it's hard to walk away and not do something about it. So I got involved through my church um, um, at the time and uh, was out on the streets, you know, handing out sandwiches and, and doing homeless outreach work and had an opportunity to meet Mitch Snyder, who was, for many of you may remember, kind of a, a real, kind of the first, you know, national kind of homeless advocate. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, that was kind of how I got kind of drawn into this um, this movement and um, yeah, just haven't left it. So, yeah. Yeah. So Pamela Lutan, thank you so much. For thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you know, next Yom Kippur, when we once again you know, hear the, the words of Isaiah calling us to keep the hungry, I, I hope that we'll be um, you know more educated, more engaged, uh, both in the um, particular work in our community and the work of advocacy. And, and you've given us um, you know both inspiration and, and and a lot of direction to to go and learn and do the work. So thanks. Thanks thank so much you. for joining us. Thanks. And thank, thank you all. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.